Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. COVID has killed nearly 611,000 Americans and some 4.2 million worldwide as cases of the Delta variant surge across the globe. A busy week as investor jitters prompted a volatile week on Wall Street as the Delta variant cases uh, increased, raising questions about future lockdowns, uh, including in the United States, uh, in areas that are largely or not as vaccinated as they could be swamping uh, local hospitals. Uh, the prospect of new lockdowns and vaccination mandates have prompted demonstrations in Australia, France, and elsewhere. U.S. airlines posted their first positive earnings since the start of the pandemic, and Surfair announced a deal for as many as 150 hybridized Grand Caravan aircraft from Textron. This, as climate change and the need to combat it, have reached panic proportions uh, with the public and uh, lawmakers. Uh, good reason in the wake of a spate of natural disasters hitting nations uh, around the world, including wildfires in the United States, as well as epic and deadly floods in Europe and Asia. Speaking of Europe, Dassault, Saab, and Talas all reported earnings, among others. In Washington, the Senate Armed Services Committee agreed to increase U.S. defense spending by $25 billion. And in Russia, as we briefly discussed last week, a new export stealth fighter has been unveiled. Our expert team will be giving you its verdict. And speaking of that expert team, joining us to discuss the week on world markets, as they do every week, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch in our new Jersey Bureau, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy, now in the northernmost tip of Denmark uh, in Skane. It's good to have the whole team back together again, and thanks for everybody's patience. Last week was a little bit of a challenge because everybody was in uh, different places. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Uh, and Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage of the upcoming uh, Navy League conference and trade show, Sierra Space, uh, the Navy's uh, largest such gathering in this year being done uh, in person uh, at National Harbor, I should point out. Uh, Ron, start us off. Very, very bumpy uh, week on Wall Street, despite some positive news. Obviously, the $25 billion plus up for defense would bring the U.S. defense budget up to $740 billion, uh, up from the $715 billion that the administration uh, has uh, requested uh, talk to us a little bit about what's been weighing on investor minds, especially as concern about the Delta variant uh, surge, frankly, around the world. Yeah, sure. I mean, just kind of we do our kind of our roundup of what happened. Um, just just look at, say, Lockheed as a benchmark for defense. Um, Lockheed was up about a percent on the week. You compare that to the S&P, believe it or not, on the week was up about just under 2%, um, you know, after swinging around. Um Boeing, as a bellwether for commercial aero, was up um, about in line with the S&P. Um, and uh, the uh, Virgin Galactic ended the week down, although it had a uh, volatile week. I, I think there is a sense that things are getting more volatile, but it's interesting. If you look at the VIX index, which is, uh, if you will, the, the fear index, the volatility index, um, you know, it's sort of like a derivative of a derivative. 
um, you know, it's bouncing around, but it's still trending down, right? I mean, it spiked uh, early in 2020, um, but it's you know largely been you know trending down with you know kind of upward spikes. So um, you know, it feels volatile, but if you look at the numbers, they're not as they're not as volatile as 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 you might think. Um, interestingly enough, um, you know, Honeywell reported last week, and you know, they painted a a reasonably upbeat picture for um, the commercial aero companies. Um, if, if you look at their numbers, um, their overall um, aerospace business uh, was was up um, about seven percent. Um, if you look at the breakout of it, uh, it was really buoyed by their aftermarket business in um, uh, business aviation and general aviation. Um, their you know large commercial business, the transport business, was up, but maybe slower than people had had, had hoped. But net net, um, the business really got a, a nice boost out of. Um, you know, business and, uh, gen- and general aviation. Uh, fuel prices, oil um, was kind of relatively steady on the week and interest rates were relatively steady on the week with maybe a little bit of downward pressure. So um, my sense, Vago, is there's people are out of the office, trading's a little weird. We're moving into hardcore earnings season. You know, we got a couple of companies, uh, actually more than a couple of companies reporting this week. So I think in, in another week or two, we'll have a good sense of sort of where the market's mind is. And a little bit of quarterly uh, sheet tidying as well, right? That drives some of that volatility. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Sash, uh, lockdowns are uh, coming back in many places of the world. This is the Tokyo Olympics get uh, underway. And I think everybody is uh, saddened by seeing um, such a great event in such a great country without anybody to really enjoy it. I mean, all the athletes talk about the extraordinary nature of the venues and the thoughtfulness of, of everything. And so that's uh, very, very sad. Uh, on the other hand, there are surging cases worldwide uh, of the Delta variant, which is is fueling uh, concern. You in the UK have, you know, opened up, but there is worry there uh, as well. There is increasing discussion and talk about vac- vaccine passports. I think the uh, Biden administration is wrapping itself a little bit in knots uh, on 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 that uh, issue. Um, you know, as as vaccine stocks are thrown away. And A350s, right, the first of which is uh, being delivered from the Tangin, uh, Airbus's Tangin facility. Talk to us about where we are on travel, on all of these dynamics, um, and what it means going forward. I think that the travel statistics at the moment, um, which, which have, you know, for the last week have continued to be pretty strong in the US, although there's some signs that uh, travel is beginning to top, air travel is beginning to top out uh, and move more in line with the, you know, this, the, the normal seasonal trends. Um, China's been pretty good, uh, but on the other hand, Australia had a dreadful week last week. But, so, but I think that in general, most of these travel statistics are probably more backward looking than people would like to acknowledge. And that the underlying news flow, which as you say, is, is, is more about lockdowns, you know, Australia um, ha, you know, pretty much went into complete lockdown again. But Europe, the, the concept of free travel in Europe, I mean, it's very, very hard to work out sometimes, which, and, and Richard's got direct experience of this uh, up in Northern Europe. But, you know, if you, if you want to fly from the UK to France, forget it. If you want to fly from the UK to Italy, yes. But if you want to fly from Italy back to the UK, that gets harder. Um, so the areas that are most fragmented in terms of their flying are most vulnerable to uh, the deteriorating uh, environment of, of coronavirus. And I think what's been rather a shock to politicians has been to discover that you can have a population that is, let's say, 70% vaccinated, 
which in terms of the population's health is a stunning performance from zero at the start of this year. But the 30% that aren't vaccinated are all catching the Delta variant at the moment. And therefore, you know, this third wave, and it's at least a third wave, is running riot. And uh, the vaccinations that countries have done have been great at reducing hospitalization, but they make your neighboring countries really worried about accepting your nationals. And hence that travel is not behaving in a, or yeah, travel's not behaving in a rational way in terms of vaccination at the moment. I mean, it probably won't be until vaccination passports actually do exist. And hence you can prove that you are uh, vaccinated, um, that there will be a break between the, the level of cases in an individual country and whether there are travel bans uh, imposed on it. Because then the travel bans will just be on people who are not vaccinated. And for some of those, that may well have been a, um, a choice they actively took, in which case probably you know, it's, it's right not to give them uh, travel, uh, you know, the, the, the ability to travel freely. Uh, and that might actually finally put the confidence back in the, uh, the global travel in industry, particularly the international travel industry. But until that happens, well, it's anybody's guess. Um, I, I, I would uh, point out that we as Americans have a yellow card uh, of vaccinations that I had to school uh, to show whether to go back in school as well as to get into countries around the world. Right. So, I mean, so this notion of somehow impinging on your civil liberties is is absurd. It's, it's a little reminiscent of the discussion in the, in the 1920s. Uh, you know, well, you're going to require me to have a passport. This is absurd. I ought to be able to travel freely. Uh, when when people were like, well, we want to be able to better control our borders, right? Um, Richard, uh, airlines uh, have had some good earnings. American reported uh, booing the group. Ron mentioned that uh, some of those uh, figures uh, were good. But what happens when the Delta, you know, what happens when all of us will need to lock down again to protect those who don't have the sense to protect themselves by taking vaccinations, right? I mean, state and local governments are getting rid of vaccines that are expiring because, not as many people are taking them. And as we're seeing with the statistics, they're paid, you know, and this, and this the, the Delta is a thousand times more uh, transmissible uh, than uh, the strain of the vaccine that prompted us to shut down in the first place, right? So it spreads more easily and it's potentially more dangerous and deadly. Where, where are we earnings-wise, airline-wise, and uh, as a bull on the outlook for travel and how quickly we rebound, how does that fit into your calculation? Because assume, presumably, this gang will be a breeding ground in which actually more virulent strains of the virus will develop, given that's sort of how viruses work. Yeah, I mean, all of this is extremely worrisome for those of us, uh, as you say, me, who have been bullish on return to travel. We didn't calculate that some states would be ruled by, well, 12-year-olds, which is certainly the case, not to name names, but obviously Tennessee uh, comes to mind. Uh, this is all very concerning. Uh, one can only hope that the recent surge is inspiring people to change. And hey, even in Tennessee, they've changed all of a sudden. And you have, you know, television clown commentators suddenly say, oh, no, no, I'm very much in favor of a vaccine. All of a sudden, trying to erase history. It's embarrassing, but maybe it'll get the job done. And that's good. Uh, I, I want to point out, though, that some of those commentators who said go out and get vaccinated 24 hours later then changed their tune and said, well, no, I never said go out and get vaccinated. So anyway. It's, you know, it's not and, as logical and, as we would like. And I also made an unfair comparison because I have a 12 year old and he's a lot more sophisticated and consistent than these people. So I, I apologize to my 12 year old for that. Uh, now, what are the consequences from an airline standpoint? I think they're 
you're exactly right to identify this because, you know, when you cut capacity and you destock everything in the warehouse and then all of a sudden numbers start coming back fast. Oh, profits look great. <laughs> they just really do. Um, and until, you know, obviously you have to start spending heavily on restocking those warehouses. And of course, well, maintaining and overhauling equipment that had been, you know, rotated between green time components and whatever else profitability looks really good but if all of a sudden you do start increasing capacity uh, restocking re-overhauling whatever else everything starts spending again and then there's a double dick dip due to a, a, a crackdown of some sort consequent of the delta virus i don't even want to know what that looks like but yeah you're right to identify that as the biggest risk to the aviation industry's profitability moving forward Potentially, it's it's going to be devastating, and of course, everyone's plans for renewal of their fleets, particularly their narrow-body fleets, all of a sudden get that that just has the kibosh put on it. Just when people are ramping up production, that would be devastating. So uh, let's hope that there isn't another series of lockdowns that people do get serious about. Well, keeping the pace going on vaccinations or getting back to where they were in terms of pace, because it's a little frustrating. You know, back in February, March, the problem was nobody able to get a vaccine. Will we be able to do this? And now it's just a question of political stupidity and amateur pandering, actually professional pandering. I think they're really quite good at it. Uh, and that's a little frustrating and potentially very damaging to the aviation business. Um, Ron, where, where do you stand on where we are and what the prognosis is uh, for the future, right? Because all of this is going to have impacts on, you know, not just on the wide body side of things, but on the narrow body side of things, especially if we have another wave, uh, especially in the fall when transmissibility becomes more of a concern than it was in the summer. We saw this last year where folks kind of got out and about and felt really, really good about themselves. And by golly, I'm not wearing a mask. And then we saw the deadliest phase of the pandemic um, in the in the fall and through the winter. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I can't really speak to you know the the politics of masks and no masks and you know vaccines and not vaccines. I'm vaccinated. I wear a mask at the grocery store. All right. Um, that said, however, it's interesting. You look at uh, what Honeywell said on the earnings call. They're expecting you know global flight hours to get back to 2019 levels in 2024. Um, this week, when um, Raytheon Technologies reports, I'm expecting them to say something pretty similar about their commercial aerospace businesses. Um, you know, our models still have mid 2023. I looked at what happened in India. You know, India was sort of the poster child for things getting really good, and then things got really bad, and now things are starting to get a little better. Um, you know, the recovery in some ways is fragile because there's the aspect of this that's not you know, economically fundamental, it's, you know, it's virus fundamental, it's, it's a, you know, bio thing. Um, so, you know, we're still sticking with mid 2023, because of the uncertainties around what what could happen. Um, you know, hopefully, um, this next next phase of the virus isn't um, as, you know, as catastrophically impactful as it was um, the previous round. But, you know, sadly, we'll see and it and to some sense, um, it's all it's out of our, our hands. It's you know tied up as um, both you know, Sasha and Richard point out in the politics and everything else that, that goes on in this thing. Um, but yeah, that's that's where we are. Um, Sash, let me take you to uh, European earnings. Uh, Dassault, Saab, Talis uh, reported. Walk us through on what they and other companies in the group in Europe had to say and what they tell us about the future, defense or commercial. 
or uh, okay. uh, corporate aviation, as in the case of yeah. Customers. Well, I, yes, absolutely. I mean, look, first of all, you know, if you look at the the share price change for these three stocks this week, Saab ended the week up thirteen percent, Dassault up five percent, Talis up one percent. So Talis was in line, meh. You know, uh, Dassault was pretty good, and Saab just blew the lights out. I mean, that that's the headline uh, here. What was good about Saab? Um, Saab's a very small co- company trying to do very big contracts. Grip and E, both for Sweden and for uh, Brazil. The A26 submarine uh, for Sweden, Globalize Airborne Early Warning uh, uh, aircraft, uh, initially for the UAE, but then I think that will sell very widely. These are multi-billion dollar uh, contracts, which means they are tens of billions of, of Swedish crown contracts. Uh, and they're not quite bet the com- company uh, contracts, but pretty close. And it's ca- the company's cash flow has been very, very volatile, but generally pretty poor for the last couple of years. Last two quarters, they've started doing what they said they would do, which was to generate cash, produce, you know, decent but not dramatic margins. But, you know, they, they've underpromised. They've definitely overdelivered on the cash and the market really liked that. Um, so that, that, was a, that was a good set of results. Uh, and cash flow really does re- reassure uh, investors every single time, frankly. That's so fascinating. Um, the defense business is long-term stuff. They're delivering to Qatar and India at the moment. They've got Greece and Egypt coming up. We reckon they've got order cover for the Rafale uh, through the end of the uh, decade now, which is really impressive. But what was really good about Dasso this week was Falcon. And I heard this here first from, from Ron last week when he was talking about the, uh, the US BizJet companies. Um, and I've always been a bit cautious about uh, Dassault's Falcon business on the basis that it's a, a, a mid to larger cabin uh, business with a fairly tired franchise at the bottom end of the range with the Falcon 2000. Uh, and I wasn't sure it was going to get quite the same traction in an upturn as, say, Textron or Embraer. Boy, I was wrong. I mean, they, you know, they got five times as many orders in the first half as they got in the first half of last year. Um, they've started to grow their backlog for about the first time in six years. That's a really positive thing. And, of course, they've got these two new programs, Falcon 6X, which starts deliveries at the end of next year, Falcon 10X, the ultra-large BizJet, uh, two and a half years after that. So you can start to see the Falcon turnaround really coming through, uh, and that was impressive. Talis, the results were good. What's the concern about Talis? Ultimately, it's a paradox. They're generating cash, which is good, but the market is worried about what they're going to do with it because last time they were generating cash, they went and spent it on a big acquisition, four and a half billion euros, uh, a company called Jamalto, which is not a company that defense investors feel particularly um you know, comfortable and easy to analyze because it is a, a hybrid industrial consumer uh, technology business. A lot of encryption, uh, a, a lot of exposure to uh, IoT, biometrics and so forth. But it's not classic Talis stuff. And I think that investors are just a bit worried that Talis is going, you know, as they generate cash, they're going to become ungeared in about 18 months time, uh, rather than necessarily handing back cash to investors, which is arguably what people wanted last time, I think that there is a worry they're going to go and do another acquisition. And the risk is it's a dumb one. And it's really up to management to prove otherwise. Uh, just uh, having discussed this issue with Patrice Kane, although uh, it's been uh, a little while since Patrice and I have seen each other because of the uh, pandemic. I mean, I would point out there was strategy behind this as the company is looking to expand its 
uh, artificial intelligence capacity, its uh, commercial uh, capabilities, and something that they saw to be an expanding market, even if the market is looking at it perhaps in in a way that may be a strategic. It was part of an a strategic effort by the company uh, in in order in order to try to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, look, look, you know, and and I would admit uh, if I don't understand Jamalto, that's as much my fault. In fact, probably more my fault than the companies. But I, you know, just to give an idea of the sort of pushback that I think, or the concern that investors have, is uh, you know complex acquisitions, or indeed, you know, very thoughtful but uh, you know um, uh, asymmetric acquisitions are always harder to to understand and and, and to, for the market to absorb. Just one other point, actually, while you're on though, because this comes back to what we were talking about, and you know, the this very very mixed picture in uh, civil. Uh, aerospace and travel at the moment. Airbus, you'll remember at the end of May, came out and said, we're raising production rates, you know, 40 now, uh, 64 by the end of 2023, next up 70, maybe even 75. I mean, an astonishingly bullish projection and indeed an encouragement to their suppliers to go out and invest. Um, Thales, uh, to, you know, last week was quite cautious, frankly. I think that Thales is not sure that the air traffic market is going to hold up through the winter in particular, which comes back to the point that Richard was making. You know, that it's actually been quite easy to make money by just run, running down your stocks now. But if you are a CEO, are you going to invest in new capacity now when you just don't know what the next 12 months looks like? I don't think Patrice Kane is. And that shows the pushback that Airbus is going to be getting when they announce their results next week. Uh, Ron, let me uh, go to you because obviously we did see uh, uh, earnings from Honeywell, but there is an expect, you know, obviously uh, a lot of the big American primes are going to be reporting uh, next week and beyond. What are uh, expectations? We did discuss this a little bit last week, but just to give you an opportunity to refine it, because the closer you get to earnings, the better, you know, the more clarity you tend to have. Yeah, sure. So uh, kicking off earnings actually tomorrow is, or Monday is, is Lockheed Martin. Um, and then we've got, you know, later this week, Raytheon Technologies, Boeing, General Dynamics, uh, Textron, uh, among others, right? So it's going to be a busy week. Um, so I think a very important earnings report will be Lockheed's because Lockheed's will probably set the tone um, and probably the bar for the, the rest of um, the, the defense group. Um, so I think all eyes will be on, um, you know, you know, backlog, operating numbers, so on and so forth. I think one area where investors have been, um, in, you know, inquisitive, wondering about Lockheed is their M&A strategy, right? Um, I think the, the move for uh, on um, Aerojet Rocketdyne was seen as a little bit of controversial, um, but but we'll see. Uh, and then you know, later, proposed by Elizabeth Warren and a number of other lawmakers and at the Federal Trade Commission and across the Biden administration, there is a concern about too much consolidation, right? So kind of a legitimate concern, maybe net net, right? A deal better done during a Trump administration, for example, than a Democratic administration concerned about competition. Yeah, but I don't think, honestly, I don't think that's what the market really was concerned about. I and mean, Lockheed's management had discussed doing um, you know, maybe more tech oriented, tech meaning yeah, maybe telecom, 5G, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then they did this and people just sort of scratched their heads. Um, I don't really think they were thinking about the competition angle, um, although that's a very good point. Um, the Boeing, I think, is going to be an important one, right? Because, um, you know, all eyes are on the 787. You know, our latest intel on 787 suggests that um, they might not deliver any 787s until the end of the year or early next year. You're starting to hear that from various customers. 
Now, what's interesting or sad about that is um, you will have at least maybe at that point, two thirds of the 787 inventory that's sitting around um, violating the MAC clause. Again, kind of the same situation they ran into with the 73, where airlines will be able to walk away with no penalty, you get their, they get their money back. You know, ultimately, you renegotiate price in a very, very soft environment for wide body aircraft. So, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, and then broadly, you know, you know, expectations on, on Textron um, are um, high because of the business aviation piece of Textron Aviation, um, like Slash mentioned at, you know, at, at Dassault, um, similar for, for General Dynamics. So I think it should you know, be a pretty interesting week. You know, the, uh, and I would say from an expectations point of view, high expectations on business aviation, not so high expectations on defense and kind of somewhere in the middle on commercial. I'm, I'm going to um, start this off with you, and I kind of want to quickly go around the horn uh, to ask about climate and uh, the Grand Caravan deal as an example of that. Um, Surf Air wants to buy up to 150 hybrid versions of the Grand Caravan uh, single engine, um, you know, for want of a better word, commuter aircraft, uh, maybe, uh, or, or end of a, you know, a, a small airport airplane uh, from uh, Textron. Um, and that sort of ties into the model of concerns about climate change, right? I mean, when the world is literally on fire or getting flooded and we're having millennial events on a decimal sort of basis, as Maureen Dowd sort of pointed out in her, her piece in The Times, I think that the, you know people have a tendency of saying, you know, I might be okay with windmills on the horizon. The, the trouble is, I think the damage is already done and it should be dawning on people. Maybe the time to have done something may have been 50 years ago. Uh, when the environmental crowd was saying, hey, there's a, there looks like there's a budding problem. Now the glaciers are going to be melting. How do we need to be thinking about, you know, and, and now folks are focusing on, I think the whole focus has to be on mitigation, right? How do you move people away from coastal areas? How do you shore up foundations? How do you, um, you know, Ron, I mean, what's the mind of investors as they're looking at this? And to put the question to all of you, right? going beyond whether or not more surf airs are, are sold, like ultimately, how does the travel industry change? How does everything, you know, it, it, is there actually significantly more change in what we think growth looks like than how we've been projecting growth? And maybe that's a question as much for you, uh, Richard, as anybody else. So, so Ron, you know, start us off on looking at the surf air, but sort of more broadly, is this actually beyond whether we have more electric airplanes and more whether we simply don't travel as much or we travel differently. Folks right. traveled a lot. So, they just did it by ship and by train, right? And sure. ships and trains are a lot less polluting. Uh, I guess it depends on how you measure pollution, but um, that's a really big question, right? So we could have a conversation on this one for six or seven hours, but in a nutshell, a couple of things. On electric aviation, it's in its infancy, right? I mean, it's a it's a new technology. Um, it's a potentially interesting technology. Um, the battery technology and the fuel cell technology doesn't exist yet um, to do a practical application of batteries or hydrogen to a um, large commercial aircraft class airplane on a reasonable mission. And it won't for a long time unless there's some sort of um, Nobel change in physics, Nobel prize um, you know, level change in physics around batteries. Like, that doesn't happen 
um, at the rate batteries are changing, you're not going to see a battery driving a 737 or an A320 class airplane for another 70 years, period. That's not going to happen. Um, sustainable aviation fuel is, is a very reasonable route. And I would imagine you will see a bigger push on sustainable aviation fuel, where if you put the circle around the entire system, it's you know net carbon neutral if you do the sustainable aviation fuel route. And you know, for another discussion, we can go down that you know, rabbit hole a lot and why that's probably the best way to go. Now, the next thing on, you know, the, the surf air deal and maybe some other deal. I'm a, I'm a big fan of new technology and applications of, of electric flight. I think um, what they're doing, I'm a big believer that in regional markets, um, electric aviation might work really well because the missions are short and the airplanes are little, little airplanes, small missions work probably works pretty well, honestly. Right. So you, 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 I would expect you'll see more of that. Right. So surf air is in, in, you know, maybe one, one direction, you know, how can I say one piece of a vector that's going in that direction, but it's, it's more regional uh, in nature. And then maybe my, my last comment is I do not believe that the world's going to stop traveling. Um, it might travel a little bit differently. Um, just, you know, for argument's sake, if you, everybody was using sustainable aviation fuel, then the world could travel like they're traveling and it would be net carbon neutral. Right. So, you know, it's sort of necessity always ends up being the mother of invention and, you know, this, you know the, the 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 spotlight on necessity seems to be getting brighter, and it'll it'll result in some changes, uh, and and um, potentially increase safety. Right? I mean, these these aircraft, the small aircraft, almost always a crash is associated with an engine failure as opposed to a structural failure, right? And um, you know, so and we found that electric propulsion plants tend to have a pretty high uh, reliability rate overall. But however, Sash however, let me add, they do have batteries that are very flammable. Um, so yeah, you know, the, well, the, that's the, true. the safety thing is, you know, just to be, you know, you know, full disclosure is still out on that. If it's more safe or not, it's probably not less safe. Right. But, you know, we'll see if it's more safe. Um, let me uh, give uh, Sash and, and Richard a bite at this uh, apple as well before we go to broader defense spending and the Russian uh, fighter and, and what we think of it. Go ahead, Sash. Uh, I, two points. Um, I'm firstly, I am really concerned about sustainable aviation fuels that it's become a sort of bandwagon that everybody's jumped onto because it is the easiest solution for the aviation industry. Um, and I recognize that Mathematically, sustainable aviation fuels are, um, uh, you know, are net uh, neutral in terms of CO2. My worry is that when you actually fly an aircraft with a sustainable aviation fuel, it emits CO2. The fact that that has come from a sustainable source and that you will be hopefully turning it back into the same sustainable source, albeit very indirectly, I don't think will cut the mustard in the next five to 10 years or so. So I'm, I'm worried that sustainable aviation fuel is not, is not sustainable at the point of burn, at the point of lift. Um, second point, I think that the concern about uh, climate change is changing politicians' attitude towards using tax as a means of trying to get people to change their habits. All you do is say, don't fly because it's bad for the, um, uh, you know, bad for the climate. People still go and fly because individually we are all relatively selfish. Um, but I think politicians will start taxing aviation. You, we can see that the EU is going to start taxing aviation fuel, which would have been unheard of even five years ago. And once you change the pricing dynamic of civil flight, you change the demand for it because the, the price elasticity 
characteristic of, of flying is incredibly clear. Reduce ticket prices, more people fly. Increase ticket prices. You want to bet that fewer, fewer people are going to fly? I, you know, that, that's where I put my money. So I, I, I think that we will see the tax environment change, and that will have a very, very bumpy effect on the industry. Richard? Um, you know, from the standpoint of electric propulsion, it looks like an evolutionary dead end, you know, between the surfair speculative order and part aerospace order from the um, These are for planes that are meant to fly. Yeah, it's going to be a really long time. Major breakthroughs required before you can scale it up. So this is a niche requirement. Um, you know, my biggest worry is that all of this emphasis on investment in alternative technologies and whatever else is great fun from the standpoint of, you know, producing charismatic new technologies, but from the standpoint of actually doing the hard work needed to get things cleaner, it's kind of nowhere. United is a great example, not to beat up on them, but their big fleet planning moves, well, the hard aerospace 19-seaters that realistically won't happen. There's the uh, advanced air, air mobility vertical EV tolls from Archer, realistically not going to happen if they do hardly a green move flying people short range vertically. And then, of course, um, you know, supersonic uh, overture jets from Boom. You have to work really hard to coat those as uh, some sort of green device. So they're making all of these big flamboyant, flamboyant pseudo investments rather than just getting on with the hard business of fleet renewal and bringing on jets that offer double digit savings in fuel. It's fun. It's for tourists. It's not real. So I'm a bit concerned about that. Now, in terms of uh, long term uh, impact, on growth, I think it's something we all really need to think about. You know, we've been living in this world where there's been, uh, there hasn't been the sort of potentially large scale ecological damage that we've seen in recent months. If, if that continues and if people's perception changes, yeah, everything could change. And the sad truth is that I don't think any of us can really imagine a world where there's a mechanism that can, well, affect people's travel behavior other than additional taxes. I'm not advocating that, but, you know, maybe that's what it'll come to because it's not like all of a sudden governments will impose, you may only travel on Tuesdays or something like that. A rationing system isn't going to work. Um, so I, aside from much higher taxes to discourage travel, I don't really know how that plays out. Ron uh, and Richard, I want to talk to you a little bit about the $25 billion uh, U.S. Uh, defense spending boost. I mean, obviously, uh, we were talking about it a little bit before uh, we got uh, started. Um, the SAS put out a 40-page summary, right? Procurement uh, up. Uh, you know, it would appear, you know, it's, it's at least $6.5 billion in uh, procurement. Um, you know, the, the each of the military services or together the military services had unfunded priority lists totaling $17 billion. And this looks like it addresses some of those. There's one more DDG-51 destroyer. There are six more uh, F-35s. There are five more F-15Xs, uh, um, you know, $750 million in more armored vehicles, uh, nearly $3 billion in base construction, $1.5 billion in research uh, technology, uh, research development. Uh, as well as test and evaluation, and then you know another billion dollars for basic R and D, and then we've got you know sort of a variety of other uh, packages uh, that are uh, on ongoing. A um, tens ended up uh, being uh, saved. Um, uh, you know, oh, surely not. That would never happen. It's it's completely idiotic. I mean, I, I don't even want to get to how stupid a decision that is. But moving moving on. 
<laughs> Thanks very much for the transatlantic commentary of the fact that we've lost our, our minds over here, right? I mean, you, the, the department, we're spending a lot of money on defense. The whole question is whether or not we're, we're, we're the, the issue is we're not spending it in the right places. And all this does is forestall any sort of priorities and necessary change, right? You could argue this could be a paving budget, but I don't necessarily think a bridging budget. And I don't necessarily think it's being sold that way. Ron and Richard, quick take uh, on, on your guys' part. Uh, uh, Sash, if you want to give us any thoughtful commentary from the other side of the Atlantic, you're welcome to do so. But let's talk about that because I also want to get your guys' take on the on the Russian uh, jet that was unveiled at Max uh, this week. We we discussed it last week, but we've seen it this week. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, so just a, a couple quick thoughts. Or um, and rather, does it change sort of the budgetary vector? Right. I mean, are you guys looking at this as okay? You know, seven fifty becomes uh, seven forty becomes the new ceiling. Do we build up from there? Do we build further down? I mean, the problem with an increase like this is that next year the drop could actually be more pronounced uh, if we come in with a seven hundred five billion dollar budget, right? So that kind of makes that that just forestalls the pain. But anyway, take it any direction you want to go. Yeah, I mean, our our forecast on defense spending was it would be better than people thought that the cuts to defense wouldn't be as bad as people thought. And this isn't surprising given you know, the political control analysis we do. Um, I think it comes down to a, a, just a simple guiding principle. You cannot be a hawk on China and a dove on defense. It's not going to work. Um, and as long as the administration um, is coming out swinging on China, um, they're going to have to support defense. Now, that being said, this has got to get through the House. This was the Senate. Um, it's got to get, you know, and then, you know, these aren't, you know, the, these are the, the armed services. These are the, you know, you're not, not the appropriators, right? So this has to filter its way into appropriations. So, you know, we're still a long way from the goal line, but it's, it's definitely a, you know, a, a bullish for defense, clearly, right? I mean, more bullish than a cut. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see a big chunk of this go through and then some follow through in, 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 in future years, kind of back to the thing. You cannot project power halfway around the world without spending money on defense. Richard, I, I should have also put uh, said that there may be language in there prohibiting the retirement of um, the ships uh, the Navy wants to retire. Uh, go ahead, Richard, your sort of sense on, on this and where we're going. You know, this is one of those unintended consequences. When the base budget was offered up a few months ago, it prioritized R&D for new technologies and systems at the expense of the politically popular stuff, procurement of existing systems and sustainment of legacy forces. Inevitably, there was going to be a plus up for the latter. Uh, so it's one of those terrific recipes for this sort of increase in defense. And as Ron says, I think just broader, the geopolitical aspect behind it is pretty strong too. So not a big surprise, probably quite sustainable, very good market for defense across the board. Speaking of military modernization, the Russians have unveiled their new stealth fighter at the Max Air Show. We talked a little bit about uh, what we thought it was going to be. We've now, see, uh, now seen it. Ron, you're a PhD aerodynamicist. You work for Boeing. You and I once spent at least 20 minutes looking at the intake of a real F-35, the first one that had shown up at the Farnborough Air Show, uh, and you were admiring its beauty and sophistication. You've seen pictures of the new jet. Uh, let's go down the line on what each of you uh, think about it. Uh, uh, Ron, Sash, and then and then Richard. Go ahead. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of maybe a thinner sister of the Boeing uh, F-35 uh, vehicle. Um, 
that forward chine inlet just looks kind of weird. I mean, I don't, I don't know how that's low observable, honestly, um, the way the way it's on there. So I don't know. I mean, I just kind of looked at it and scratched my head. Um, so yeah, I mean, it it yeah, it doesn't look like it's up to typical Russian stuff as fighter aircraft go. Sash. I, I looked at it and I had exactly the same reaction as Ron. Uh, it just took me back to the, uh, to, you know, to, to, to the Boeing uh, competitor, competitor, and you know, we we joked about it uh, uh, by text. You know, that that went really well. Um, uh, I'm I'm interested because actually, when you think about it, the Russians pretty much, you know, ha- achieved this astonishing position in the the semi-free world fighter market from. Um, Let's say the uh, you know the the the, the mid late nineteen eighties and certainly uh, in the nineteen nineties with first of all mid twenty nine and then the the Sukhoi twenty seven Sukhoi twenty seven is still going strong although we're up to Sukhoi thirty five at least uh, in terms of the numbering now um, but the Russians lost the you know um, the really strong position they had at the lighter end. Of the fighter market, and I realise that's a that's a bit of an oxy- oxymoron given that the MiG twenty nine is a twin engine aircraft. But uh, I suspect they have thought long and hard about how to re-establish their position, both in exports, but also just in terms of sheer mass for frontal aviation. Um, uh, so, you know, I wonder why they've gone gone down this route. Uh, what have you know? What what have they decided? What have they? What have the uh, the key drivers been that has developed, you know, given them this astonishing shine in, in, in take. Richard, uh, your se- uh, sense on where we are, uh, similarities to the X, uh, Boeing's X-32 notwithstanding. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, you need a few things to do this sort of announcement. One is any discussion of the guts on board, engines, avionics systems. There was none of that. It could just as well be a, you know, a freehand playful drawing come to life. The second you need, of course, is a domestic market order. Otherwise, no export customers won't care. I don't think there's any exceptions to that in fighter history. And there was neither. So uh, I think you follow this, you put us under the heading of uh, really cool Russian announcements that, you know, try to leverage their legacy capabilities in aerospace, but mean exactly nothing in terms of total market uh, success. And anything else in from Max? Uh, we're going to be hearing from Sam Bendet uh, tomorrow, who's going to give us sort of a take on uh, some of the other news from there. But was there anything from the Moscow Air Show that you guys thought was kind of interesting or needle moving? Going once, twice, three times before we end the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I'd just say, um, unlike China, the Russians are flying the MC twenty one. They're narrow bodied jet. They actually flew two of them. Uh, they clearly are aware that they are skating on the same thin ice in terms of U.S. supplied components and engines, but their, their narrow body uh, is out there flying and you know looking pretty good. I've got a fantastic fuselage cross-section uh, in terms of passenger comfort and so forth. This really puts pressure on the Chinese. They've got to fly the C919 at the Zhuhai Air Show at the end of October. Otherwise, the loss of face will be huge. Let me uh, take you, uh, uh, Ron, you get the last 30 seconds on this. Last week or week, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic flight. Uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, the new Shepard, uh, has flown uh, four people on that uh, suborbital spacecraft. 
amazing. Admire the craft for two very different reasons, right? Unity was actually flown uh, direct stick and rudder by two highly experienced experimental test pilots uh, sitting in the front of it. New Shepard was entirely automatic, uh, no spacesuit in sight, but Bezos's cowboy hat and um, cowboy boots. Any thought about what this means in a macro sense? Uh, because I think he has a lot broader of a vision of laying a space infrastructure in place, right, than Branson that is making it pretty clear that it's it's kind of a, a tourist thing, right? I mean, Bezos has a bigger vision what he wants to accomplish with the technology. Yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. Um, if you know, if you look at the the, the New Shepard spacecraft, the the launch vehicle and the spacecraft, I mean, it's you know, way over designed for just that mission. So clearly, I mean, this is a vehicle that can do do other things. And as you move on to New Glenn, where you get into orbital flight, I mean, there's just a, there's a much broader vision here. Uh, and when you think about um, the commercial space market, I mean, it's it's not just space tourism, but it's also you know the launch business, putting you know satellites in orbit and many other things. There's deep space exploration kind of across the board, and both um, you know um, uh, Mr. Bezos and uh, um, the folks at SpaceX, um, uh, Elon. Uh, have had have that that vision and you know it's it, there was an interesting um, uh, article in the wall street journal actually comparing you know the space billionaires kind of to the vikings and exploration kind of taking this away from the government and going into a commercial venture um, and that just kind of you know kind of piqued my interest so it's it you know they're all kind of moving in 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 i would say the right direction and these are the steps to take to make a commercial space industry we'll see ultimately how it how it pans out and so on and so forth but clearly um, when you think about the commercial space industry it's not just tourism that's just a small piece but it's it's also space infrastructure getting cubesats and in, in that low earth orbit mid orbit the cis lunar economy deep space so there's a lot going on and, um, and clearly what uh, blue origin did this week was a step in the right direction for that vision and and Starlink, right? I mean, obviously, when you when you talk about small satellites, uh, Elon Musk can't launch them into orbit fast enough, uh, whether astronomers uh, like it or not. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, uh, Richard, um, you were on the move. We especially uh, appreciate it. You guys hope you have a great dinner. Uh, Sash, you've stayed up late for us. Thank you. And Ron, thanks very much, as always, for joining us, guys. Have a great week and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, thanks so much, Vargo. Really appreciate it, Vargo. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.